Hello and welcome to Inside the Admissions Office, the official podcast of Ingenious Prep and your go-to resource for expert admissions strategy. My name is Noelle, and each episode, I'll bring you behind-the-scenes knowledge from former admissions officers about their first-hand experiences reviewing applications. Our strategies have helped countless students gain acceptance to top universities, and we're here to help your student gain that competitive edge and do the same. If you would like to set up a complimentary strategy call, simply follow the link in our episode description, and our expert team of enrollment counselors will work with you to create a personalized plan for admission into your student's dream school. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. We have a special interview for this episode. I was able to sit down with one of our past students who got accepted into Yale, and we really had a chance to dive deep into his strategy and discuss everything he did to secure that acceptance letter. I'm so excited for you to hear all of his great tips. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Sean. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean, and I'm currently a Bridesmaid Junior at Yale University studying neuroscience with a minor in Global Health Studies. I applied to Yale through the early action round and the 2021 cycle where I was accepted. So I'm really excited that I get to interview you today. I know you are an incredible success story. I want to start by going all the way back to really when you decided you wanted to go the neuroscience route. When or how early did you know that this was your path? I've always been interested in biology and medicine, and I could never decide between, okay, was I interested in the basic sciences or was I interested more in healthcare research? But I think one thing that combined everything was that I knew I had a fascination with the brain and I just, I perceived you like the most remarkable aspect of human evolution. So that was around seventh grade. And I think I gained that experience through a science fair project in eighth grade. And I basically propelled with that through all of high school. So the eighth grade science fair project, can you tell us more about what you did there? Yeah, so I did a very small project at home with a friend in my neighborhood where we basically looked at how UV radiation using a UV light that you can buy on Amazon affects fruit flies in terms of their lifespan, fertility, or the number of offspring they generate, and then also if their offspring have any physical mutations. And all of this was done in the confines of my basement, much to the chagrin of my parents who were not happy with the number of fruit flies that were there. But It did cement my interest in research, my interest in continuing that science for a scientific message kind of thing in high school, and ultimately my passion for biologic health and neuroscience ultimately later on. And what did you do with your research? Did you submit it for any competitions or journals? In grade, I just competed in science fair in the regional level. And then we did actually in high school, my partner and I decided to submit it to a journal for student research run by Harvard PhD students called the Journal of Emerging Investigators. Since it was a low stakes student journal, it was a great way for me to just learn, okay, how does research get published? And that set me up later for ultimately getting more actual peer reviewed publication. And when I did my first research project, I decided to enter in my science fair. And I really didn't think anything was going to come of it just because we had so many kids who were interested in research. But that was the first year that I went all the way to the state level. So I passed the regional round and then I got to the state level. And it was a really good experience for me because I learned how to present my research in front of an audience and in front of judges who are more professional than I was. But science fair was like a big part of my high school career. First year, I went to the state level. Second year, I didn't even pass the school. Third year, I happened to make it to the international round where I actually won. That was the International Science and Engineering Fair, a really big competition for high school students. So that was 
That was science fair. And then there were a lot of other small competitions that I honestly also would recommend. Everyone thinks when they think of research, they think of ICEF, which is this big whole science fair thing. But there are a lot of other ways to show research impact. Publications and conferences was another big thing for me. So I also submitted to graduate level conferences. There was no age limit that I saw on some of these websites. I saw an ad for a conference in Toronto for neuroscience concussion research. And it was usually for college students and PhD level students. But I applied and I, I got in. They accepted my abstract. All you do for this is you just submit your abstract for research and you go and present. And so I did about five to six of those academic conferences. And then there are some other smaller competitions like the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium. It's a national run research symposium for, I think it's run by the DOD and like the military. And so I went to nationals for that as well. And that was actually my most success. I won like first place at the national level for that. And then there were some other small neuroscience things that I found here and there in my pursuit of competitions. Like the American Academy of Neurology is a big institute for professional development, but they have like a $1,000 scholarship. And so I applied to that too. I was fortunate enough to get that as well. But there are a lot of other options for presenting research other than the traditional science fair competition. I am honestly full horde. That is such an impressive resume. I know we barely just scratched the surface with your research experience, so I'd love to kind of go back and discuss that. Can you walk us through what you did to really get yourself published and ultimately win these awards? I started again in my basement and then 10th grade is when I decided I really wanted to learn more about specific techniques within biology that I wasn't getting just at home. So I reached out to a mentor at the National Institute of Health, and I learned specific techniques that I could take back to my high school. I learned how to dissect fly brains and then also stain them to see, okay, how much cell death is happening within the brain at a specific time. Then I was like, I really feel like there's so many projects I can just do within this overarching idea in general. So I continued to reach out to another mentor at the NIH and work for a summer where I looked at the circadian rhythm and sleep patterns of fruit flies after concussion. I know that a lot of students struggle with reaching out to faculty when it comes to research. How did you go about that? There's really a key way of doing it. I think a lot of students can tend to fall into these weird traps of not appealing the right way. And I think the biggest thing in high school is you have to establish a sense of maturity within your email when you reach out. So key thing for me is I didn't want to tell these researchers that I was interested in medicine. Even though I was, I was more interested in research at the time. So I reached out under the premise that like I have a project that I'm interested in and I've done research already and I've done a literature review. But for me, I was like, all I want is to come in maybe two weeks during the summer, learn this technique of dissection and take it back to school with me. Or if I didn't have the techniques at my school, I would just say, okay, I just want to come in and do this one part of my experiment. But I think the reason these researchers were interested in working with me were because I think I showed a sense of maturity within that email of, I already have this project idea. I have a certain skill set. I have a certain knowledge of the field. It's not like I'm asking you for a position. I just think that the key thing here is like showing that maturity to them, that you're at a similar level to them at that time. And what was the process like publishing your research? So I had already done a journal that was through the Harvard Student Journal that is for specifically high school research. But now I was like, okay, what are the chances that I can get into an actual peer-reviewed scientific journal? So I reached out to the Journal of Experimental Neuroscience. I followed all of their guidelines, wrote up my papers. And at the end of ninth grade is when I submitted it over the summer before 10. And then they were like, yeah, we want to accept this. We'll do it for review." took about a year and a half to get it from start to publication. 
I think what also helped me is that I made sure one of the authors on my journal was a PhD. And I think that gives more credibility, especially when you are a high school student. And the PhD person that happened to be on my paper was actually my high school science teacher. And so I wanted her to review it for my data analysis, writing and stuff like that. So that way she also gets to have a part in it too in my success. That's honestly so incredible that you were able to work on it with your high school teacher. Did you also end up asking her for a letter of recommendation? Actually, no. She was like my mentor all throughout high school, but she actually never taught me in a class. She was more the club advisor and I worked with her like so much. And I, in fact, think I should have used her for some of my school, but I instead used her for a lot of my summer program recommendations. For college, I used the person from the NIH as my letter because I think he had even more credibility and he also had a connection to some of the colleges that I applied to. So I think it was more efficient to use him. And you mentioned summer. So I would love to know how you spent your summers. What kind of programs did you participate in? I would say three to four weeks were me at the NIH doing this semi, I, I don't even call it an internship. I call it like a collaboration or mentorship program because it really wasn't a formal internship program at all. So I did that for four weeks and the rest of my summer was spent actually with the help of Ingenious of starting my food blog with my grandmother. So I have this whole other passion for culinary arts, culinary science, and I really wanted to pursue that in some way. And I had a lot of time over the summer. So I just spent a lot of the summer, actually probably every week, just creating recipes, taking pictures, learning food photography, making the website, and then having it all ready for the school year. Well, I have so many follow-up questions, but first, when did you start working with Ingenious Prep? What grade were you in? I started right at the end of ninth grade. So basically in August, I believe, that August before 10th. And you mentioned that you started your food blog with the help of Ingenious Prep. Did you feel like you needed help fleshing out your application further to complement all the neuroscience you had in your application? Yeah, so I think what Ingenious really helped me with was the other areas of my application that were the research-focused ones. So I got a lot out of the candidacy building phase, and I would recommend that to anyone thinking about this whole process. A key piece of this whole application puzzle is if you don't start early and you don't have the right guidance, it's very difficult to make a good application at the end of the day. And I fully credit Ingenious with the idea of the food blog. My counselor was amazing, and she was the one who had the idea for that of just basically how is the best way to showcase this passion for food? And so I immediately started working on the food blog after they gave that recommendation, working with my grandmother, just doing countless video calls with her and just getting the recipes, doing the website, everything like that. And then it got up and I'm still working on it here and there. That's incredible. I love that you're still keeping up with the blog. Is there anything else that you worked on during this time? Yeah, so that summer specifically actually was the first summer I decided to start my nonprofit organization. So I had a really big passion for STEM and equity and like STEM education, just because the area I grew up in, there was a very big disparity between low income and high income students and like the resources that certain schools would get. Like you could walk five miles down the road and you'd be in a very different world. Through my experiences actually at science fair and seeing the caliber of different projects coming from different schools, I realized everyone's passion for science is the same. It's the access for resources that defers us. Ingenious also helped a little bit with this too. And they recommended starting an organization. So that was the same summer I was doing research in the food blog. I was doing that as well. So I got my group of six people together, created my leadership board, created the website. 10th grade fall is when we did our first project. It was a very small bake sale. And then we did international projects in India and Morocco. 
We created summer camps in our area for Title I students. So it, it really just grew from there. And the funding we got also helped us achieve that. And again, it's still running to this day. Wow, that's such an inspiring and meaningful nonprofit. And I have to say, it's really impressive how you were able to juggle so many things at once, like your research, your food blog, and now this nonprofit. Was it difficult to manage everything? I think it's harder to do these things when you do them for the sake of an application or you do them for the sake of impressing someone else. I think it's important to always do something that you're actually passionate about. The key part is that I'm still doing all of these things even now. It was hard at some points. Classes were difficult and I would switch my blog to bi-weekly posts instead of weekly. For One World, that's the name of the organization I started. We decided, okay, to keep it with the most impact, but also least stress for us, we'll do one international project and one local project each year as our main academic year projects, but they should be very high impact projects. And then we'll work on that only. And then we'll have small little events here and there for publicity. So it was a lot, but I think the key thing is I was passionate about it. No, I think that's amazing because I teach private violin lessons and I have students who are young, but getting pretty burnt out because They're doing all of these activities clearly just for college. And I think it's incredible hearing you just share everything you did because you're clearly driven by your passion for it. Yeah. And since you brought up the violin stuff, I played piano. And that was one of the other things Ingenious helped with, which I had just been, I did piano for around 10 years, but I never was passionate about it to the point where I wanted to be in like an orchestra or do competition. But I did like it enough that I would still work on songs that I was interested in, but it was never consistent. Like I didn't do hours and hours every week, but Ingenious helped me use that passion that I had and then turn it into something service related. So I started actually another semi-organization, not nonprofit, but like a community organization with people who are passionate about string instruments and violin. And we would go to senior homes every week and perform there for that. So it was like a very small initiative, but we grew it in the sense that we had like over 150 performers signed up with our organization to come. It was like more of a managerial thing for me where I was like, okay, these people are going to go this week to this senior home that week. So over time, we went to over 50 different senior homes. So did you pass that on after you graduated high school? I passed it on to the person who was the co-director with me and she continued it in high school now. And then we're trying to pass it on to someone else now as well. You basically created your own legacy at high school, which I love. And so far, you've mentioned that Ingenious Prep helped you with the idea of starting a food blog, your One World nonprofit, and now this music volunteering organization. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your experience working with Ingenious Prep? What did that look like for you? Yeah, so Canada Sea Building in the beginning was primarily the food blog and the nonprofit organization. Over time, it grew to actually seep into also a little bit of my neuroscience and research in the sense that Genius really helped with summer internship program applications. In the summer before, somewhere between 10th and 11th and 11th and 12th, I wanted to apply for some very competitive research programs. They also helped with some of my competitions. So there was a senior year competition called the Davidson Fellowship for research. And there were a lot of essays I had to do for that. Ingenious helped with that. So I guess programs, activities, and then also competitions. And I know a big part of what we talk about is the application persona, which is really that cohesive narrative that drives everything in a student's application. How would you describe your application persona? I am someone who's interested in translational neuroscience and how we can translate our findings from the laboratory to the bench side and ultimately improve treatments for patients in the real world. 
But on the side, I have this other burning passion for food and how I describe it as culinary science, where I view the kitchen as an alternative laboratory to neuroscience, where I can experiment with new recipes, collaborate with my grandmother in India, who's a caterer, and just explore my passion for food further. And I think these two overarching ideas were ultimately connected to other things as well. So for me, neuroscience was also just science in general. And so science was connected to my organization. It was an organization built on the idea of STEM and STEM education and the disparity that students face. Music improves brain health. And a lot of the senior homes that I went to had patients who had Alzheimer's disease. So one of the things that they were still able to remember, even the memory losses, those songs like The Wizard of Oz and Over the Rainbow and stuff like that. So for me, it was like science and service were just connected within my application persona and seeped into everything I did, whether it was like the food, the science research itself, or the science and organizational level as well. So it was like those three overarching ideas, science, service, and food that I think would characterize my persona. I think that's incredible how you explained it. I know we got a question in another episode. A listener was asking, you know, I have so much going on, but how do I really connect everything to create that cohesive narrative? And I think the way you explained that was just perfect. Do you also remember what you wrote about in your personal statement? It started out when I was thinking about ideas. I was going down the route of I'll talk about neuroscience and my research and stuff like that. And then I decided to completely scrap the whole idea and write an entirely new essay because I remembered a small instance that happened basically two years prior where I was visiting my grandparents in Ohio and I was walking down the stairs. And for context, my grandparents are from Pakistan and my mom's family is from India, so South Asian basically. And so I was walking down the stairs. And I heard my grandparents tell my mom, oh, Sean should not be pursuing cooking. It's, it's something that is meant for women to be in the kitchen and stuff like that. And he should be pursuing his other things like he does swim and soccer. He should do more of that. He's good at science. He should pursue that. And I was just stunned in that moment. And I hadn't remembered that until I was writing my personal statement. And I was like, why not write about that? Because I think that was such a big moment of vulnerability and like shock for me. That honestly helped also stimulate my interest in food and help me pursue it further. Because I was like, no, I don't believe in these cultural stereotypes that I, I may have been derived from. So I wrote my personal statement starting with that anecdotal experience and that conversation I overheard walking down the stairs. And then I basically, through the personal statement, expanded on how cooking is connected to science for me, how it's connected to my family, and then also how it was ultimately accepted by the elder generations in my family over time. And so I ended the essay by talking about over time, my grandfather eventually had the tiniest glimmer of acceptance in his eyes when I made him Belgian waffles in the morning, like a year later. And so I think that was a very powerful essay. And I actually think it's probably one of the big reasons I got into the university that I did, just because Yale, just an example there, the admissions officer wrote back to me and was like, it wasn't really the neuroscience, it was your passion for food and how you wrote your personal statement that really cemented your acceptance. I feel like I do have a very similar experience to that just within my own family as well. So I could really resonate with that. And I feel like it's not that common for admissions officers to write back, right? Yeah. So it really was that food aspect that helped you stand out. Definitely the food. And I didn't make my application look like a person who's interested in neuroscience but wants to be a doctor. It was more a person who's interested in neuroscience but wants to improve biological treatments for patients in the real world and also use my passion for science to help people in other aspects. 
truly think that's really impactful because I think a misconception is that students should really try to only focus on neuroscience and excel there. But I know we always encourage students to do more activities, flesh out that application. So I think that's a really powerful anecdote there. Now for parents and students really in the thick of college applications, what are your top three tips when it comes to applying? I would say specificity is the first thing, like in a general, like a general term of advice, whatever activities your students pursuing and like whatever you're interested in, try not to make it so broad. You should really pursue an interest to the deepest extent you can. So take an interest that you have early on and really expand upon it and show commitment to the deepest level, because I think that's what admissions officers want to see. How are you able to pursue a passion? It's one thing to have a passion for cooking. A lot of students can have that, but like, how are you able to show that? And I think that's something like Ingenious, for example, helped me with. And also staying consistent with these activities. Don't just start the blog or start the organization and not do anything with it. Make sure you're keeping your website up to date. Make sure you're updating the newsletter because they check all this kind of thing. So the specificity is the one thing for sure. And for the personal statement, that's probably one of the most important parts of your application. My advice personally is that it shouldn't be an activity already mentioned in your application elsewhere. So it shouldn't be about your research. It shouldn't be about your nonprofit organization because the whole point of the personal statement is it has to be personal, right? It has to show character traits about yourself. The supplemental essays for each college are where you can expand on your extracurricular activity. That's where it's meant for. But if you do that in the personal statement, you're basically repeating yourself. And so a big part of this whole strategy, I think, is like layering your application. It's not just repeating the same thing over and over again. Like you want to have little tidbits of things that are not there that kind of give them a surprise. Like, oh, wow, this person is really multi-layered in addition to having an interest in neuroscience. I think for my application for Stanford, I included so many other random things about myself. So I talked about Indian classical dance. But from the personal statement, even though I did a food blog, it was more so about my journey battling cultural stereotypes and using food as a medium to connect with myself. And this story didn't come from me. Actually, my mom was the one who mentioned it. And she was like, don't you remember the time in Ohio? Why don't you talk about that? So consult with your parents, consult with friends. Like you'll think of small stories. It can be like one line and you can blow it up into a whole essay. So that's second piece of advice. And then the third is honestly, don't worry about what people are doing around you. I think a lot of people try to replicate what people have done in the past. In my high school, there was a big stereotype and tradition of students like, okay, what did this girl do to get into Harvard? Let me just do the exact same thing. I'll do the same research. I'll do the same programs. I'll do the same computer science nonprofit that she did and hope it works. And the truth is you really can't replicate it because you don't know what their whole context is. There's more to just their activities in an application. I was very non-traditional in my thing. Like I didn't take the hardest classes. Like I didn't take AP physics in junior year like everyone else did. I decided, okay, if I take hard classes, I'm not going to have time to pursue my other interests, like the food blog, like my research. So I was very strategic with my classes. I didn't take all the AP everyone else was taking. I still had a very rigorous course load, but it wasn't like I did AP physics and BC calculus in junior year. I did BC in senior year. I decided to take it slower. And the truth of the matter is your courses only matter up to a certain point. If you have a GPA that's past the mark for your school that historically has gone accepted, that's all you need. And for me, it was like, okay, I wouldn't, I can't do it all. You really can't do it all. And that's the truth of the matter. You can't have the best grade, best SAT, and also have the best research and stuff like that. 
usually students who are so focused on the courses and GPA, they don't have time to do the research to the extent that I did and work on a publication for a year and a half, juxtaposing like going back and forth with reviewers every day. And so I think that's a key part is prioritize what you're interested in and what you want to work on. Amazing. Those are all fantastic tips. And now if you could go back and give your younger self advice, what would that be? I did start early, like very early, which is like another advice. I wouldn't change that. But I think if I could go back, I think looking at how I succeeded and what helped me get in, I really realized the value of your activities and your personality in this whole process. You don't really have to take every hard class that your school has to offer to show a commitment to academics in the eyes of an admissions officer, because they really don't care. I realized because I also do recruiting for STEM students at Yale now. And once you have a certain benchmark GPA and you've taken certain classes, they don't care if you took it in junior year or senior year. They care more about, okay, what is your personal statement about your recommendations? Like you also need to really work on creating those relationships with teachers that are really deep-seated relationships. Actually, that's my biggest piece of advice. So I actually viewed my admissions file when I got into Yale. I actually saw what they liked and what they didn't like from comments to scores, everything. And one thing that I saw was that my letter of recommendation from my mentor at the NIH, they rated on a scale of one to eight. And eights are usually rare, like no one gets eights, but that was the only eight that I had. And they said that letter that from my neuroscience mentor there at the NIH was one of the most superior letters they've ever seen. MD and PhD students get those types of letters. And so I think that letter helped me and also made me realize the value of like, they were really talking about that letter for a long time. And it probably was a big thing that also supported my whole application from the neuroscience standpoint and the research perspective. My teachers, on the other hand, I got sixes out of eight. So they were like, they were good, but they weren't the best they could be. And there were some comments there. Okay, like his English teacher was amazing. Like the letter of recommendation was amazing. But his DNA science teacher primarily talked about him from an academic standpoint and from the perspective, oh, he did a really good job in the class. But there wasn't any like anecdotal experiences that that teacher talked about that the English teacher did. So I think it's really important to create those experiences with your teachers also that they can talk about. It shouldn't just be like, oh, Sean was an amazing student in my class. He participated all the time. Apparently, my English teacher put in my recommendation, the project we had to do on the evolution of slavery within the U.S. And instead of doing a presentation via PowerPoint, I made a cake. And I talked about the evolution of slavery through a three-tiered cake. And he basically wrote almost half the letter about that cake. So I think it's those tiny anecdotal experiences that are what you want in your letter. It shouldn't be general. And I think that's the hardest thing for students to actually get in their letters, which is why most students get fives and sixes and you can't get to that eight. Is like you really want the teacher to be like, I had this amazing conversation one day with the student that I never forgot about. That's the type of impression that you want to have on your teachers rather than just being the traditional kind of, I'll bake cookies for you, I'll raise my hand in class. It's a lot more complicated than that. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you would like to speak with one of our experts, you can set up a complimentary strategy call with one of our enrollment counselors by following the link in our episode description. And for more information and access to additional resources, you can register for our webinars, which is also linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, you can email me directly at noelle.kim at ingeniousprep.com. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Inside the Admissions Office. And don't forget to follow the podcast so you're notified every time a new episode is available. That's all for now. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.